And I want to thank uh, our hosts at the McBride Center and Baylor University for uh, bringing us this Global Business Forum. As a relative uh, newcomer to Waco and to Hillcrest and Scott and & White Healthcare uh, and to Baylor, I, I really can't tell you how glad I am to have joined the community with the resources, the ability, and uh, mainly the desire to address critical global issues like international public health in a serious and constructive manner. I am privileged to introduce our speaker tonight. Uh, Dr. Jerry Anderson is a professor of health policy, management, and international health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's also a professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Hospital Finance and Management. He has served as a national program director for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and has directed reviews of health systems in numerous countries for the World Bank and the U.S. Agency for International Development. He has authored two books on health care payment policy and published more than 200 peer-reviewed articles. He serves on several committees and has testified regarding health care policy before the United States Congress on more than 35 occasions. Healthcare economics, as our elected representatives will tell us now, is an extremely complex and controversial topic. Dr. Anderson has been a respected thought leader among some of the brightest minds in both healthcare and economics. He's addressed difficult issues with courage, including lectures that I was able to participate in as a student in which he dissected the lack of value in US healthcare for a room full of American clinicians. I hope that tonight's talk will be a little less contentious <laughs> And Jerry, I will try to keep my mouth shut this time. <clears throat> As a professor at the world's leading school of public health, Dr. Anderson helps to shape the thinking of a student body which includes the best minds of more than 75 nations. And he has a substantial influence on the current and future leaders of many national and global healthcare systems. We are truly honored to have him with us tonight. Dr. Anderson. I got a challenge, I got this and I got this. So I think I can handle the technology. Um, so it's quite an honor to be here today. Um, I have former students, um, lots of faculty who I, whose materials I've been read and today I had a chance to discuss a number of interesting topics with you. So I, it's just been a great pleasure to be here all day today. Um, Originally, I was, I was concerned. I, once I saw that Baylor was in the Sweet 16, I thought, well, they'll probably play on Thursday, and Thursday is the day I'm supposed to talk, and I'm going to have no one in the audience other than a few other people. And then I realized when, you know, when we had, had uh, Dr. Gardner and, and other people with an influence that they could move the NCAA game from Thursday to Friday, so I thank him for uh, adjusting all those kinds of things. Now, when I looked at the schedule, and I essentially said, um, you know, what, do, what, do, what is everybody interested in? And, I, and they said global health, and, you know, I was trying to figure out, should it be interested in high-income countries or low-income countries? What are we interested in in this group? And you're interested in everything. So... Given that, 
I decided I would essentially try to cover both topics today, which is generally not a good idea, but let me try to do that today in the 30 minutes or so. And then what I'd really like to do is to have as much of a dialogue as I can with you. So I see that there are microphones, at least over there, and I can put this one over there as well. I'd really like to hear from you. I mean, I know what I'm going to say. What I don't know is what you're going to say. So I'm really interested in having a discussion with you either now or uh, later uh, this evening. So if my first question, and it really is a question, is I'm going to talk about something tonight for low- and middle-income countries. What am I going to talk about? My question is, what major health care issue in nearly all low- and middle-income countries is almost completely ignored by international aid agencies? What am I going to talk about? Anybody got any ideas? What's, what is not on the agenda of the Gates Foundation and the, and the World Bank and all these? And this is so important for low- and middle-income countries in health because they are the entities that fund health care. Somebody got an idea what I'm going to talk about? What's missing? Yeah? I'm going with sanitation. Sanitation, okay. Anybody else? Water. Water's important. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. Okay. Um, and then the second one is the performance of the U.S. healthcare system. How does it stack up to other industrialized countries? And Jim gave a little preview of what I'm going to say, but um, basically what I'd like is your, a sense from you of, do you think in terms of healthcare outcomes, not where you'd want to get care, but in terms of healthcare outcomes, are we doing well compared to other industrialized countries, or are we doing so-so? Are we doing poor? Where, where are we in, in, the, in terms of outcomes? Where do you think we are? 37. 37. OK, we'll talk about 37. We're going to talk about that one. All right. So let me start with the first one is, this is my answer to the question of what is missing from the international aid agencies. Non-communicable chronic diseases, things like diabetes, hypertension, um, these kinds of things are responsible for most of the burden of disease right now in most every low and middle income country. And yet, the international aid agencies are not devoting very many resources to this. And so my question to you at the end of this is, why do you think they're not? So that's, that's my challenge. And the trends are going to say that it's going to continue on. So if we look at causes of death in the world, and I, and I know some of the more sophisticated people say, well, death's not the only thing you should take a look at. But in the world, 60% of the deaths, the one in red, are from non-communicable chronic diseases. So that's where in the world most of the deaths are occurring. If I look, and even in low-income countries, 40% of the deaths in, are related to non-communicable chronic diseases. Now, you could say, well, everybody's got to die of something, and so that's not terribly surprising. But still, it is 40% of the deaths, and I'll come to, and to a little more sophisticated in a little bit. 
I've been working on this issue not terribly successfully in raising awareness, so that's why I'm here talking to you and keep selling this idea, but I've been working in the Latin American and Caribbean areas, and this is the percentages of years of life lost from non-communicable chronic diseases. So it's about 50% of the years of life lost are related to non-communicable chronic diseases in Latin America. I've also been working in Eastern Europe, R Russia, those places, compared to the original 15 countries in the European Union, so basically Western Europe. The countries in Eastern Europe are, live an average of 11 fewer years. And if I'd looked at this issue 25 years ago, they would have had pretty much the same life expectancy. So Europe has been growing. East, Western Europe, Eastern Europe has been shrinking over periods of time. And so the question is why? And basically, it's all about non-communicable chronic diseases. Non-communicable chronic diseases are responsible for 16 times more deaths than if you add up all the deaths from infectious diseases, all from maternal and child health, all from nutritional deficiencies in Eastern Europe. And yet, the World Bank, USCID, is spending most of its money on TB, um, uh, and AIDS and other kinds of things in these regions. Cardiovascular disease alone is responsible for over half the deaths in Russia and places like that. And this has gotten the attention of the leadership of Russia. So this is a quote from basically the State of the Union of Russia in 2005. We cannot reconcile ourselves to the fact that the life expectancy of Russian men, women is nearly 10 years and that of men nearly 16 years shorter than Western Europe. Many of the current mortality factors can be remedied and without particular expense. And this is the leadership, so it's gotten the attention of the leadership of the countries. What it hasn't gotten is a lot of, of attention from the international aid agencies and places like that. Most productive years, 50, 15 to 60. Some of us are getting towards the end of our productive years. Some of us have passed our most productive years. But, you know, whatever. The scary part of this is that in Russia, 35% of the men who make it to age 15 will die before they're age 60. 35% of the men. Well, not only are they dying early, but a lot of them have illnesses which prevent them from working when they get to be 45 or 50 or, or 55. So now you're trying to have an army. You're trying to have a whole nuclear stockpile. You're also trying to have a, a growing, vibrant economy, and 35% of your men are dying before they're age 60. That's not good. And so, and most of these deaths, 80% of these deaths, are related to chronic disease. So this is why they are spending so much time. In terms of economics, 
basically if we look at places like China, India, uh, and the Russian Federation, they're going to lose in economic productivity anywhere from 200 to 500 billion dollars over the next 10 years because they are not devoting very many resources to non-communicable chronic disease. And I could do the same argument for Latin America uh, and a whole variety of other places as well. If I look at chronic disease and disability-adjusted life years, which take into account the whole issue of premature mortality, but also an inability to function very effectively, half of, the, uh, half of these DALIs, disability-adjusted life years, uh, the ones in red, are for non-communicable chronic diseases, and about half of them, or 40% of them, are for communicable diseases. That's for the world. If I look at low-income countries only, it's now a third of them are, the DALIs are related to non-communicable chronic disease. It's more for infectious diseases, but it's still a third of it being non-communicable chronic diseases. I'm spending a fair amount of time these days in Bangladesh, um, and what we found is basically half of the, the, the burden of disease is non-communicable chronic diseases, diabetes and those things, and half of it is communicable diseases. And yet, there are no programs, no programs in Bangladesh to deal with non-communicable chronic disease. It's all about maternal and child health, it's all about AIDS, it's all about malaria, it's all about these kinds of things. This country spends $47 <laughs> per person on health care most all of it coming from international aid agencies, and they devote nothing to half of their burden of disease, nothing at all. Seven, you know, sort of why? I'm going to come back to this and ask you, why aren't they doing this? But seven myths about chronic disease that, as I've been giving this talk, I find. The first one is chronic disease mostly affects high-income countries, people like us. But four out of five chronic disease deaths occur in low- and middle-income countries. So it's not just that it occurs in high-income countries. Well, if we look at individual countries here, this is cardiovascular disease. This is AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, the three big things that international aid agencies spend. Brazil, big difference. Canada, big difference. China, big difference. India, big difference. Nigeria, now we see a country where they actually have more of a problem with these infectious diseases. But if I were to do it in 2015, this orange would be bigger than this. And Pakistan, Russia, UK, Tanzania, again, bigger, but by the time we get to 2015, the orange will be probably bigger than the blue. So even if I look at individual countries on these things, and all I'm comparing it is one non-communicable chronic disease, that being cardiovascular disease. If I'd add, if I'd add diabetes, if I'd add all sorts of other uh, issues, including mental health, it would go much higher than that. Chronic disease basically affect rich people, but they don't. And if you have a, uh, 
chronic disease and you're poor in any of these countries, you're much worse off than if you're rich. You don't want to have diabetes and be poor in Bangladesh. You don't want to be, have diabetes and be poor in Russia. Mostly affects old people. Basically, a quarter of the chronic disease deaths occur in people 60 and under. And if I do disabilities, if I do uh, problems with chronic disease, the numbers go even higher than that. Chronic disease are mostly men. Nope, it's 50-50. Basically can't, cannot be prevented. Well, basically what we know from looking at high-income countries like the United States is that 80% of all heart disease, strokes, type 2 diabetes can be prevented, 40% of the cancers can be prevented. We can do things about that. And if we look at cancer, if we look at diabetes, if we look at things in the United States and high-income countries, we've seen a very significant decline in death rates related to those. We're seeing just the opposite. In these, higher in, in these lower income countries. And it's because we don't have any programs around this. Basically, nope, these are very uh, expensive, but they're not. I can show you, and I will in a minute, a number of programs um, that can be done for a dollar a month, 50 cents a month, very inexpensive to do these kinds of things. And I won't go into details because I don't, you know, I want to make sure you get a chance to go watch whatever basketball game you want to watch. But essentially, uh, say, you know, I can show you programs in Brazil where they've really engaged in exercise. They've got people in, in exercising uh, in a whole variety of ways, and they're doing it at about seven cents per person. I can show you smoking cessation programs that, that other countries have done, hypertension, cardiovascular, self-help groups, just a whole variety of different programs, all which can be done at the level of expenditure that a country like Bangladesh, the Tanzania, they can afford in those kinds of things. So it's not like places like the World Bank can't afford to do those or not cost effective to do it or anything like that. But, you know, sort of the bottom line here, if you look at how the World Bank, the USAID, the European Union, the Gates Foundation, the Clinton Foundation, the Global Fund, where do they spend all of their money? And why this is so important is this is the money that these low and middle income countries have to develop new programs, to really have the programs to operate. They're spending almost all their money on malaria, AIDS, TB, infectious diseases. And so my question to you, and there's a number of reasons why, and I've been writing about this, but I'd really be interested in your perspective as to why is all of the money being spent on these things when there is this, what I'd say is very significant, burden of disease, and the costs are relatively small to take care of these things. Anybody got any ideas? I'm going to change topics. So anybody got, if you were Bill Gates, I'm giving you $40 billion now, would you spend it on? Well, I, yeah. It's certainly not sexy. It's, it's not, not sexy at all. 
and you're trying to affect lifestyle changes as opposed to just giving vaccines. Right. And that's just not as sexy. It's difficult, I guess, in people's minds to make a lifestyle change without any, somehow saying you're being a colonialist or something. Right. So, you know, I can get Angie Julie Jolie to hold a baby with AIDS. I can't get her to hold a 40-year-old man. Right. Maybe the 40-year-old man would like it, but, you know, that's the thing. Yeah. against behavioral sciences, I think, versus traditional medical practice. Yes? Maybe the same reason that you don't have massive programs in the United States. You don't want to take on organized medicine and, uh, and the hospital industry. It's, it's, it's a little more, you know, you have a little more, I mean, you can make an argument you're spending $100 million distributing cheap medication I go to Bangladesh 
and I can see the great urbanization that is occurring in places like Bangladesh and people living on their farms and getting reasonable <coughs> nutrition and reasonable exercise and moving to the slums in Bangladesh. And the nutrition is horrible, the level of exercise they get, and all of a sudden we have diabetes in Bangladesh. I think probably that one of the things, it's the same reason that we don't do a lot of things, is that your sermon hasn't been preached. I don't think that the people know what you know. And so I think sometimes we don't get because we don't ask or we don't educate. So I think that if the Bill Gates of the world knew what you knew, not what he's been sold, then he would probably do something different. So I think it's about being able to spread the word, not, not because they wouldn't if they knew. I'm, I'm hoping you're correct. I really hope you're correct. I don't know how far I want to carry. I don't know how far I want to carry this, but this ties in with the uh, not being sexy comment. But mm -hmm. when we see problems in the third world, it's usually in the face of a sick child, mm -hmm. and so malaria, chronic diseases, things like that, create a sense of guilt, maybe a sense of obligation. But at the same time, you know, we want to help the sick kids. We're not really worried about the forty-year-old diabetic. No, that's what I got to figure out is how to. How to make that 40-year-old diabetic sexy. <laughs> that, that's a problem. It is a problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've been doing physical therapy now for about 20 years. And I see patients all the time for cellophemoral syndrome, back pain, rotator cuff strain. You can get insurance coverage, you know, for three, four months, six months of treatment for that. But when somebody has a life-threatening disease such as diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, there's nowhere to send them. There's no rehabilitation program for that. I think the problem starts in the hands of the physician. The physician's got to take control of this and start making this a part of their best practices. And I think the insurance companies need to get on board and say, okay, we're going to pay for this. We're going to make this a part of the rehabilitation community. Because if doctors get behind it and start educating, there's a movement out in California called TLC, called Total Lifestyle Change. These doctors are starting to actually take that stance. The studies show that a patient will listen to a doctor above anybody, personal trainer, fitness professional, physical therapist, whatever, they will listen to the doctor. The doctors get a hold of this. They need the tools to be able to get this to the patient, and they need to be paid for it. Until they are, I don't think it's going to happen. That's what that's the challenge of taking it from the U.S. and other places and bringing it to, you know, international. Our, our learning here in the United States, translating it overseas. I mean, that, that's the challenge. And, um, so if we're doing a lot of really interesting things, not always getting paid for, but we're doing a lot of interesting things in trying to change behavior in the U.S. We haven't translated that very much globally. And so at least I think we should do it. Last one, then I want to move on. Because I have a second time. Have you, have you spoken to the Gates Foundation about this? Well, I have, you know, but it How just not well. <laughs> um, and, and, I think, and it really starts, I think, with Bill Gates, who really is a technology person. Okay? He, you know, he developed Microsoft. He developed all this stuff. He's looking for a technological solution. So vaccines really appeal to him. And so, you know, he, he feels that. The second thing he sort of sees is, 
Well, we were able to deal with lots of infectious diseases in the 1900s, 1920s, 1940s, and really do a very good job. We should be able to take that technology and do it overseas. We still are struggling with chronic disease. And, my, and, and I, I don't want to say we shouldn't be doing work on malaria in these countries. We should. But we also got to recognize that we can do a lot of stuff in chronic disease as well. He just has a limited amount of money, $40 billion, got a limited amount of money. He's just not so far choosing it to spend it that way. I keep, talk, I keep talking to his people, and we'll see. We'll see. All right, let me move on. So this has been really helpful. I'd really, you know, your ideas on, on why is really important to me to, to try to figure out what's the point that I need to convince the World Bank and other people. So let me turn to a second question, and I ask you this already. Who has the best health care in the world? Okay, so I've been writing this paper now for 15 years, so this sort of summarizes this, the same paper that I keep publishing over and over again. So we start with one of your local boys. Um, and basically, in 2004, as part of the State of the Union address, this is what President Bush says. If you listen to the debate that they had in, in the Blair House about uh, two or three weeks ago, this statement was made about 10 times equally by Republicans and Democrats. And any politician has to make this statement. Somebody said it already. The World Health Organization looked at the best countries in the world. France was number one. Japan was number 10. The US was 37, one behind Costa Rica. Yeah. We'll get there. I got a plant. This is really good. So what were they based on? Three factors. Health status, responsiveness to the expectations of the population, and financial fairness is what they did. And so the question, as you asked, is are these the right questions? Are these the right factors? And I think most people in the community said no. These are probably not the right factors. The World Health Organization really didn't get it right. They also had methodological problems. They didn't ask when they wanted expectations. They asked the leaders of the country, not the people in the country, what was their expectations. You know, that didn't make a lot of sense, but they had to do something quickly. Um, essentially, face validity. Does anybody believe that France is the best? Probably not. Is it possible, though, I think for me, that what I really looked at was, you know, could you really summarize the health care of a country in one number? Or is it really more complicated than that? So that's what I, one of the things I've been looking at. Examining the performance of, of different components here in terms of quality, you know, the standard things of structure, process, and outcome. But it also, especially for the economists in the room, for economic and community development, or OECD. And these are the industrialized countries of the world. And because I didn't want to show you slides with 30 countries on it, I'm just going to check sort of the bigger, the ones that you'd say, we should compare ourselves to. So 
This is the standard one that everybody starts out with, so I will start out with it. Life expectancy at birth. We're down here. We're at the bottom of these countries. You know, but there's lots of things other than medical care that go into life expectancy. So, but that's not good. This is the one that troubles me more, and this is the one that I'm bragging about now, is how are we doing over a 20-year period, the last 20 years of data? We're not doing very well here. Our life expectancy is increasing. The CDC, the NCHS, tells us every year that we're living a little bit longer than we did last year. But if we go to the CDC equivalent in New Zealand or Germany or Italy, they would even have a better story to tell. Their life expectancy is increasing even faster than ours is. So, you know, it's just not particularly looking good. Let's take a, let's go a little bit more deeper into some of these things. What about dying from a heart attack? Well, here, we're about in the middle. This is the middle of the, this is the median of the 30 industrialized countries. And we are a little bit better, but not much. We have been devoting most of our resources the past 50 years to doing things about heart attacks and acute illness and those kinds of things. And even after doing all of that, we're about at the middle of these industrialized countries. If I look at potential years of life lost due to cancer, we're now above the median. We're not looking so good. And if we look at over time, we haven't improved all that much in terms of cancer mortality, and nobody else has either, unfortunately. Now, if we start getting into things that are more chronic disease-related, we're number one. We don't want to be number one, but we're number one in terms of potential years of life related to diabetes. Now, Sure, some of that's that we're fatter than everybody else. And being heavy and diabetes are heavily correlated. And, you know, so I'm not blaming it all on the medical care system at all. But we're not doing very well. We're not doing very well. So, but again, some of this is behavior. Some of these is other things. So now I'm starting to say, you know, well, let's take a look at individual medical indicators where we think medical care might make a difference as opposed to lifestyle or other kinds of activities like that. So now I took a look at a number of things. So cervical cancer screening rates, smoking rates, breast cancer survival rates, uh, colorectal cervical cancer survival rates. Compared to the, I don't always have 30 industrialized countries, sometimes I have 20, whatever. In some cases, we're doing quite well. So cervical cancer screening rates, getting those things done, 
we're number one. We're doing really quite well. Smoking, after Canada, where we've cut the number of smokers down quite dramatically. I was really surprised when I checked into the Hilton. They asked me whether I wanted a smoking or a smoking room. I'm not used to that. Um, but uh, essentially, breast cancer survival rates were pretty good. For relative survival, for observed survival, were not so good, depending on how you do your epidemiology and those kinds of things. These are ones that we're doing reasonably well on. If I go on to the next one, mammogram screening rates, retinal exams in diabetics, and if I get down to asthma mortality rates, you shouldn't die from asthma. We're 21 out of 25 of these industrialized countries. So I can show you, if I want to tell you a feel-good story about the US, I will talk about certain things. If I want to talk, have a, a, an average, I can give you data on that. And if I want, to, if you want you to feel bad about the United States, I can give you data on that as well. So, you know, what, what, what we have in these debates is somebody will pick one thing and say, we're doing really well. And that's an absolute true statement. But somebody else can make an argument that we're not doing very well at all. And that's an equally true statement. So we've got to sort of figure out what, what, where, what are we doing. The economists in the room would say, well, that's clinical and that's important. But how do we feel about it? What's our satisfaction? What's our utility from uh, this? And so essentially what we did was we asked people in these six countries, how do you feel about your health care system? You know, it's not scientific. It's all perceptions of how do you feel about your health care system. We took the six categories that the Institute of Medicine said these are the best quality measures. And we try to ask them about, did you feel safe when you went to your doctor? Did you feel like you know, you, high income and low income people are treated equally? Those kinds of things. Number one is good, we, you were very happy. Number six is you weren't very happy. We weren't very happy compared to these other countries in terms of comparing what we believe to be our healthcare system, our perception of our healthcare system compared to these other countries. Now, you know, it got to end on cost. We know how to spend money. We definitely know how to spend money compared to these other industrialized countries. One of the things that you know, the economists in the room will tell me is the more higher income you have, the more you will spend on health care. Health care is what economists call a superior good. It's a good that when you have more money and a, as a country, you will spend more of your income on health care. It's, it's something that we all value. And as you can see, as you're Income, yes, your, this is health expenditures, this is income. As your income rises, your health care spending rises. There's one country that's an outlier. That's the United States. We, spend, we really like our health care. Now, I've had 
some economists try to fit curves that can get that so the United States is on the line, and they're quite sophisticated in those things. I've, I continue to draw a straight line, but you could do it in any way you wanted to do it and, and maybe get it so that it, in fact, works. Another thing that I did was I took a look at those projections, and then I put them into quadrants in these various countries. So these are countries who have less than expected spending, but also less than expected life expectancy. So I wouldn't necessarily want to be in that quadrant. This is the one I really don't want to be in. This is the quadrant that has more than expected spending and less than expected life expectancy. There we are. You know, where I want to be is up in Japan. Much higher life expectancy, much lower costs. Now, life expectancy isn't the only thing that I care about. We could do other kinds of measures like this, and we have done them. This is probably the easiest one to show. So, essentially, are we getting value for our money? Jim said that I give this lecture frequently, and I do. Um, basically, as I look at this, we don't seem to be getting value for our health care dollar. Most of the difference, when I look at it, in terms of expenditures and utilization, seems to be prices. We do not get more prescription drugs. We do not get more doctor visits. We do not get more hospital days than these other countries. Now, you know, it's hard to say when we go to a doctor, do we really get better care in the United States? Do we get more care per hour, per visit when there? We just don't, we know, we don't really know how to compare those visits very well. I can just tell you we don't get any more visits. In fact, we get fewer visits and we have fewer hospital days than these other countries. So it's not quantity. So just economics, or just simple accounting is basically price times quantity. So the, the policy challenge that we have in the United States, when we talk about cost containment, it's not so much, at least internationally, that we've got to continue to ratchet down the number of days in the hospital, to continue to ratchet down the number of, uh, of doctor visits. We probably actually need more of those doctor visits. What we do have to uh, figure out, though, is when are we going to say our cost of our day is too much. So if I take a look at a hospitalization in the United States, $12,000, $14,000, France, $4,000. Is it really four times better in the United States? If I compare brand name drugs, not generics, but brand name drugs in the United States, head-to-head -head comparison, we spend three times more for the same drug as France and, 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 uh, and New Zealand, for example. Three times more for the same drug. And so the question is, if we're going to do cost containment, what are we going to do? Now, 
What's the scenario that's going to get us to do cost containment? Because if you look at the, the current legislation that just passed, cost containment's not there. It's just not. So I was talking to, to Glenn Hackbarth just last week, who's been the chairman of MedPAC for the past 10 years. And he and I started in the government together in the same office. We've known each other for 30 years. And basically what he said is, what we need to do is to control prices. It's prices stupid is, is one of the things that I've been talking about for a while. And, and he says, well, well, you know, and I said, well, I went into the administration to control prices in 1978. We haven't done very well to control prices in the last 30-something years, so maybe I'm the problem. I don't know. But whatever. Um, he says, what's going to force us to do it? China. China's going to force us to, to control health care costs. Why are they going to force us to help control health care costs? Because essentially, they're going to stop buying our bonds. They're going to stop essentially supporting the, the, the health care spending in the United States. It's not that the Congress is going to do it. It's not that WellPoint is going to do it. It's not that the AMA is going to do it. It's China that's going to do it, and maybe Japan as well. I mean, they're just going to say, wait a minute, you just can't afford to spend 18% going to 20, going to 25% of your GDP on health care, and be competitive in the international market. Now, I, I don't know if that's true, but it's quite persuasive to me that essentially the Congress isn't going to do it. I've been trying to work with the private insurers. I don't see them doing it. I don't see that the hospital administrators, the doctors, have any stomach to control costs, and I don't see why they necessarily should. I think the place that's going to be is China. With that, I'd like to hear your comments on the second part. Thanks. Yeah? Actually, you were showing some of the countries that were in the better quadrants. Yep. Uh, one of the countries was Japan, which yep. as part of their culture, they're not a litigious culture. Correct. So to what degree does defensive medicine and uh, tort reform play into this, in your opinion? Um, I'm not a big believer in defensive medicine or tort reform, but I think it has a, a, a play. Um, and here's my, my problem with this. One is, empirically, there's very few studies which show that tort reform really saves a lot of money. And the, probably the best example is Texas, which has fairly good, perceived to be fairly good, to, and there is some level of savings from tort reform here, but it's not a big number. When we've tried to, so that's the tort reform side. The defensive medicine part is even harder to try to empirically estimate. Um, because we don't know when a doctor orders a test, did the doctor do it because they were concerned about being sued or did they believe it to be good medicine? Or we just can't determine it. I also think that if you put a limit, a cap on punitive damages or anything like that, that it probably will have very little impact because I don't want to get sued. It's not that I don't want to get sued for a million dollars. I don't want to get sued for anything. 
I mean, that's just, you know, reputation or whatever. So I'm not sure that it will have such a big impact on it. The Congressional Budget Office, which is in Washington, the arbitrator of all these things and has taken a look at that, for 10 years said it will have no impact, zero. Now there's been a couple of studies which have come out which have shown an impact, like in Texas, on behavior. And so they are starting to give some money in terms of savings, but it's still in the tens of billions of dollars. Sounds like a lot of money, but in the course of $2.5 trillion in healthcare, it's nothing. So I'm not a, I, I don't see it as being a big number. It's something that we should definitely explore. The AMA hates me. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <clears throat> when, when I, I think part of what you're describing is really, uh, it describes the importance of the concept of systems. That is, uh, when, when President Bush or anybody else in Washington say we have the best health care in the world, that's, uh, I mean, the reality is that we might have the best health care technology in the world, but, but health care doesn't really describe what happens in the United States. Um, if, you, if you say we have the best health system in the world, um, that, uh, it, it take the word care out of it, that, that uh, illustrates the, the fact that prevention is not part of, when you say health care, that does not include prevention by, by definition. Um, and so I, th I think our, um, our health system performs well for, for individual patients who are in it, but having it perform well for the population is a totally different goal. And, and maybe that's where we're falling short. And that's what I've been measuring. That's what I've been trying to measure. Although I try to look at things like life expectancy for you know, breast cancer and a five-year survival rate. And again, I see good, but I don't see outstanding on those things as well. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, and, and I'm, I'm proud I got my accounting degree at Baylor. So I, I learned cost accounting under Dr. Holmes. <laughs> I, I've sat in the boardroom of hospitals. I'm the past chairman of the board of Parkland Hospital in Dallas. When I, when I entered the boardroom and I started asking the accounting questions, what does it cost for that procedure? And their answer was cost. What can we get reimbursed? And that's what's wrong with our healthcare system. When you start trying to reduce cost, and you haven't addressed what cost is, you're fighting a ghost. So I think we have to go back, and I wish that, you know, that our policy makers would go back and start <clears throat> from ground zero, an old bad term called zero-based budgeting. And literally, and that's what basically this transparency is doing a little bit of that. And, and, but I think that the, the core of our whole problem of being able to bring health care into a manageable cost is to first know what that cost is. And then you can hold people to accountable. Then you can compare why a drug in one country versus another. The same issue of Canada, why we can bring mail order money, uh, medicine in. So I, I think that's something that I'm not hearing enough lectures about. Uh, because I don't think the people doing the lecturing understand it because they haven't set where the rubber meets the road. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
Now you've, got, now you've got him upset. I was, I was not able to do it, and I apologize. In a, a room full of economists, I'm sure I'm going to get myself in trouble. But, but I've maintained that I think one of the biggest problems in our system that, that we've had up till now is that price has really had very little relationship to what providers are actually reimbursed. So price has not been able to, to adequately signal to the market anything meaningful. So I think, although I agree that, that uh, cost control does not exist in this new legislation, I think by promoting more uniform health insurance coverage, I think we'll see prices come more in line with actual payments and price will start to signal the market more adequately and will in the end provide us some cost control. So what price signals can we give you? that would, would be essential, other than cutting it. <laughs> well, I mean, what else can we, what, what price signals can we give to get you, so we're working on value-based purchasing, we're working on pay for performance, we're working on a whole but, variety of things. Right, but I don't think it's price signals to providers, it's price signals to consumers <coughs> that, okay. that matter. But see, my, my problem with price transparency is as a consumer, I can't evaluate a hospital. I can't evaluate whether or not your hospital really does a good job of open heart surgery or taking care of a heart attack or taking care of diabetes. There's a bunch of numbers out there that compare you to other hospitals. I honestly don't have any confidence in those. I don't know if you do, um, but I don't. You know, we've been trying to do this for nursing homes and I. You probably remember I took you guys through an example of comparing nursing homes in Baltimore and the data that CMS has. And would you send grandma, would you send mom to that nursing home that had the best this, this, and this? And the answer is probably not. Right. You know, I mean, that, the problem is we really, medicine is so complicated, even nursing homes are so complicated that trying to come up with one number or a couple of numbers, it's really hard. I mean, I just don't know how we're going to do it and, and have the people confident enough to believe those numbers and say, I'm going to go there. I mean, Bill Clinton went to, I mean, it was all about transparency. He went to the, one of the hospitals that's in the bottom half of New York City hospitals when he got, when he got ill. He didn't go to the number one. He went to the bottom half. I appreciate your, uh, your comments, and as you probably remember from this afternoon, there's a, probably a, a great deal of disagreement between us, but I'm not, not, not going to go into a point-by-point -point, uh, discussion <laughs> with you. We'll have to save that for some other time. Uh, I, I, I do I have a lot of agreement on the, the conclusion in terms of the cost. I mean, obviously, we've got, and I believe you and I have talked about it, it's the prices. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, we've got to figure out a way to, to try to bring prices down uh, if we're going to make this thing work. But I, I would like to, the <clears throat> tomorrow, I don't want to steal too much of my thunder because there are probably three or four points that you made today that I'm going to take the opposite perspective on tomorrow. But I will say this just at the very beginning, the WHO study that was done in 2000 where we come in 37th, um, 
you know, Cuba came in 34th or something like that. And you know, come on guys, do you really think the Cuban healthcare system is better than the U.S. healthcare system? There were two measures that they used in that, in that study, two different uh, indexes. Uh, <clears throat> and I can't remember exactly what they called them, but, but, but the one of them we came in 37th and the other we came in 15th. And the one we came in 15th on uh, basically took out the, um, <clears throat> the government's role. It's that fairness thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the measure there, which was 25% of the index, right. was what percent, basically what percentage of cost does the government pay? Well, you know, that's, you're setting up our system for failure when that's, mm -hmm. when that's the one. You, you take that out, we're 15th. But the other thing that, that's important in that 15th is when you take the confidence intervals into consideration, the, the sort of the error terms, uh, there were only two systems in the world that, had, that were st statistically significant in terms of being better than the U.S. That was Japan and uh, Norway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no, I, I, you, you, I mean, the when, WHO when you, when stuff, you, I wouldn't have, I, I have don't, very little I mean, confidence. When, when somebody said we're 37th, I mean, I just want to, that, that makes me crazy <laughs> when, when, when people talk about that study. That is such a bad study. The only we agree thing, on this one. This one yeah, agree on. Yeah, the, the only thing that I would take as, as possibly one measure is that number two up there, the responsiveness to the desires and expectations of the population, we were number first. One. I, I it counted 12.5% of the index. So, you know, I think somebody figured up all this stuff and said, okay, how can we, how can we make the U.S. look really bad on this? Well, you know, and, and they, it, was Chris, they the it was Chris Murray who designed this stuff, and he's an Australian, but, uh, <laughs> but he's now at the University of Washington, so. Two more comments. Uh, I, I really shouldn't approach this because uh, with your last comment about China being the reason we're going to change prices, um, it's interestingly, when you, as an economist, when you think about prices, you think about competition. So how much of you, in your studies, have you looked at, we, we got from administration that there's no competition out there among insurance companies, that the, our gatekeeper is basically colluding to drive the prices up. Did you find any much evidence on that when you were doing that kind of research? No. I mean, I cannot tell the difference between WellPoint and United. Okay. I mean, I can tell the difference between Burger King and McDonald's. I have no sense that there's a different philosophy organization between our biggest insurers, they all look the same to me. So I don't see much competition there. Well, the other thing, obviously, when you're talking about inflation, what you're talking about now, what 16% of GDP now goes, and it's probably driven, as you say, driven by the price. Uh, in order to have inflation, economists think this is a monetary phenomenon. So you have to have an increase in money supply, which is, in your case, you're saying it's debt driven by our ability to borrow from uh, China at relatively favorable terms. Is that what you're saying? And that's where China comes into the equation. As long as they continue to lend to us at these low interest rates, we'll continue to inflate prices. Mm -hmm. That's your conclusion? Yep. Yeah, which, yeah, I, I'm, I, I agree that there's a certain uh, area there. Obviously, though, that that's going for a lot of other things, too. Oh, so yeah, absolutely. deficits can be continuously financed, I suppose, as long as they'll continue to lend us at those types of rates. But do you really see that China is going to turn that around, given their portfolios are driven by the value of the dollar? 
Right now, in the next two years, definitely not. But sooner or later, I think yes. I don't know when sooner. So we've got two years to change the subject. We've got more than two years, but I don't know how long yet. I don't do forecasts. I've learned that. But it's going to be a crisis. If it's not a crisis, we're not going to do anything. Exactly. So I mean, that's where I think that it's really China or somebody internationally that's going to tell us, if you can't afford to continue to do what you're doing any longer. Because I don't think our Congress is going to do it. I don't think our industry is going to do it. I don't think our insurers are going to do it. I think it's going to be an external force. One more question. Well, or comment. I know when I was interviewing for a job in economics many years ago, somebody said the first law of economics is the laws of economics don't apply to my industry. And healthcare, people have always pushed that. But it seems to me that the FTC, at least with regard to the hospital industry, ought to be trying to create a little more of a competitive market. I mean, when everything consolidated after managed care in the mid-90s, most markets were left with one or two hospital systems. And so the insurers really couldn't bargain in terms of price. And those hospital systems have increasingly soft up physician practices and kind of have got quite a bit of market power relative to anybody else. And then the other thing is that even before you got into this health stuff, a guy named Bud Schenken and I wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 1973 calling for giving the patient a copy of his medical record. And we ran through all of the advantages. And the big one, one of the biggest one was you could take the record in yourself. Somehow these diagnostic centers would spring up. And for relatively low cost, you could find out if you were getting the kind of treatment that was appropriate. And at the same time, physicians and hospitals would feel that what they did was going to be out there in the public. And so they might be a little careful about calling you names, but they hopefully would be also careful about delivering the appropriate care. And yet, this is recurrent. This is 37 years later. And I don't see much movement towards kind of a real market arrangement in the practice and organization of medicine. In other words, it's still largely decentralized. And even talk about electronic medical record is for the convenience of the hospitals and the insurance companies, not to enhance the capacity of the patient to either maneuver themselves around the system or to even search for better prices for that matter. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank Dr. Anderson for what have obviously been